David Spada is a successful attorney whose dream was to become a sports talk show host. Elliot Harris is a Chicago sports columnist who wanted to expand his media presence. In the next hour, they combine their talents and love of sports and women by interviewing former professional athletes and lovely ladies on sports and torts. But keeping the boys out of trouble isn't always easy because when David and Elliot are together, they have more fun than should be legal. Welcome to another edition of Sports and Torts on TalkZone.com with David Spada and Elliot Harris. Today we have former college coach Jackie Sherrill. You were born in Oklahoma, but you went to Alabama for college. Wasn't that sacrilegious back then? Well, uh, I was back in Oklahoma, and I grew up there till the ninth grade, uh, and then moved to Biloxi, Mississippi, and was recruited by... OU, uh, Alabama, LSU, Tulane, uh, Mississippi State, Georgia Tech. Uh, and I was going to OU because, you know, during my youth years, o- OU was on that great 48-game winning streak. And so on Saturdays, you'd watch OU play football. As a matter of fact, I remember watching the OU uh, Notre Dame game where Notre Dame beat OU. Uh, to break the record or to stop the record, but and then uh, when I moved to Biloxi, Mississippi, uh, I was still going to OU, and Coach Bryant came in and visited with me for two hours. Never asked me to come to Alabama. Just talked about Alabama, talked about the players, talked about different things. They were on their way to the Sugar Bowl. And Coach Bryant came down and, uh, to look at Biloxi, but in the meantime stopped and visited with me for a couple of hours. And that that kind of changed my mind. You know, I'd already taken a visit uh, to Alabama, and on my visit, uh, you know, I, I still was going to go to Oklahoma. But uh, after two hours with Coach Bryant, uh, he never asked me to come. Yeah, but I felt very comfortable, and that's ended up going to the University of Alabama, playing for Coach. Uh, but, it, you know, great teammates, you know, from Namath Sloan, uh, quarterback for Namath Sloan, Stabler Hunter, when I was there, and I had the opportunity. They'd won it in 61, 62. They should have won it my freshman year, but in 64, 65, we won it back-to-back. So Ole Miss didn't want you? Did not want me. You know, I guess they they felt like uh, I wasn't good enough to be a rebel. <laughs> I, I'd have to think John Fought might have regretted that at some point. Oh, well, you know, we never lost to them. Uh, I played <laughs> them in the football, and, and I had a uh, – that was my uh, sophomore year, and – Namath was suspended for the game. Matter of fact, uh, he got suspended after the Miami game, and so Steve Sloan was the quarterback, uh, sophomore quarterback, and uh, I was fullback, tailback, linebacker, and uh, and you know played pretty well. And 
we we won the game twelve to I believe nine or twelve to seven. You had to have been a pretty good high school football player for the programs that recruited you try to come after you. Uh, how good were well, you? You know, the, the older we get, the better we were. <laughs> you know, I've, I've always said, you know, I wasn't a great player, but I wasn't a bad player. So, you know, I was, you know, there were 67 of us that went to the University of Alabama and uh, to start the season, there was only like three out of the 67. Back then, freshmen couldn't play, but Coach Bryant had a saying for every sophomore that he started, and you felt he'd lose a game. But, uh, you know, I had my head coach Stallings was my defensive coach, and I got to start. We were opening the season with Georgia and my sophomore year, and we are on a uh, Thursday practice on the goal line. Eddie Vesperelli was a, a linebacker and really an outstanding linebacker fullback. And he called the wrong uh, call on the goal line. He called his ball was on the one-inch line, and he called goal line out instead of goal line in. Coach Stallings comes unglued and jerks him out, puts me in there. And I could imagine in that meeting with Coach Bryant saying he'd want, he wants to start Jackie instead of Eddie. Uh, that probably didn't go over too well, but it, it happened. So I was one of the fortunate ones. Uh, Paul Crane, uh, Steve Sloan, uh, David Ray. Uh, we were the, I think, the four freshmen uh, and Tim Bates. So I think it was five of us that actually played our freshman year, our sophomore year. Were his practices as difficult as they were made out to be, uh, Coach uh, Bryant? Yes. You did not. Coach Bryant was a man's man. Everything you ever wanted in a man, he he was. He's very physical, big man. Six, you know, six four to probably two fifty to two seventy. And you know, when we'd all be outside in the locker room, kind of waiting to get ready to go out on the field. If you ever walked out of out of his locker room, it was something we shall gather at the river. You did not want to go to practice because it was not going to be very easy. And but I think that you know he probably said it the best. You know, years later he had a reunion from the Junction guys, and you know he listened to them all tell what they were doing, uh, how successful they were, and he got up. And he made a statement. He said, you know, all these years, and his wife was Miss Mary Harmon, and he said, all these years, I've always wondered if I did the right thing, meaning how he practiced the players. And he said, I know I did the right thing now after listening to how successful they are. And there's a lot to that. I mean, today, the problem that we have is, you know, we have four types of players, players that are good and know they're good, players that are average, I mean, good and don't know they're average, uh, players that are average and don't know they're average, and players that are average and know they're average. 
And there's very few coaches out there that can handle the five-star or the players that are good and know they're good. And, you know, the the, play, the coaches that can handle those are the, are the coaches that win. You know, Stoops and the two out there right now that probably are the best is Saban and Stoops that can handle those types of players because you got to make them do something they don't want to do. And you got to make them accomplish things they didn't think they could. And that's one thing Coach Bryant could do. You know, he made you do things you didn't want to do, but he also accomplished an awful lot of things that you never thought you could. Well, and, and if you can get the most out of an average player and get close to the most out of a, an above average player, then I would assume that you're way ahead of the curve in in terms of developing a team. Absolutely, and you know, and you see it. It's, it doesn't matter whether it's pro ball or college or high school or you know even junior high school football. When you have players that are spoiled, you have players that are able to control things, and those are the players that completely destroy a football team. And I'm. I remember when I hear a coach tell me, well, the player is soft, and I, my retort back to him is players play like they're coached. So if you're, if you're allowing him to be soft, he is soft. Uh, don't, don't put a label on a player if you're coaching him because he's, he plays like he's coached. And the same thing in pro ball. Uh, you know, you have players, you wonder why certain coaches uh, are able to take players and, and players that no one else really wanted and win with them are players that, you know, no one else could handle and and they end up being great players. Coach Schellenberger told us a couple months ago that no one except for Joe Namath ever went into that tower at the practice field where Coach Bryant watched all the practices except for Joe Namath. Was that true? When, yes. When Coach, when Joe was being recruited and out, Joe got to Joe got to Alabama. He was really going to go to Maryland, and the the coach at Maryland uh, was had played for Coach Bryant or uh, played with Coach Bryant, and uh, and he called Coach Bryant because he didn't want Joe to go anywhere else and he had to compete against him. And when Joe came down for his visit, Coach Bryant invited him up on the tower. And he's the only player that's, that was ever up on the tower. And it was kind of funny because when we, when Coach was up on the tower, we'd have coaches that would be glancing up there to see if he was watching them or not. But if you, during practice, if that, if that change ever rattles, if that chain ever rattled, everybody knew that something was going to happen because Coach Bryant was coming off that tower, and he never came off that tower until practice was over with unless something was going to happen. Was it ever something good? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> No, I remember, you know, people ask what it was like to play for Coach Bryant. And I relay a story that it was 
the spring of, of my between my junior and senior year, and we had, they allowed the alumni to come. Uh, Coach Bryant did one one practice in the spring, and the alumni were there. And Coach Bryant blew the the horn, told the manager, saying, "Why did you blow the horn?" Blew the horn and man, we were all excited because practice was over with. We ran inside and jumping up and down and Coach Bryant walks in, told Sang Lighter to get all the alumni out and lock the gates. Now the gates were, you know, seven foot gasoline fence with three bob wires on top and, and, uh, anyway, he walks into the locker room and he points, you, 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 you get dressed. There was only three of us that didn't have to go back out. Now we really were happy and advanced <laughs> and so when I walked out of the out of the locker room, they were on the lower practice field and I heard Coach Bryan holler at one of the players, Les Kelly, and he said, Get Cheryl out here to show him how to do it. When I heard that, I went over that fence, over the barbed wire, I had no idea how I did it. <laughs> But I wasn't going to hang around because I've been there too many times. Was there a championship in Alabama that stood out as your best one out of the two? Uh, yeah. The 65 probably was a, a better one because in 65, uh, we only had, I think, seven seniors out of the 67. And it was the smallest class Alabama really ever had as far as seniors. And, you know, being able to win it with a small group of seniors, but, you know, they were, they were pretty good seniors. Yeah. Did, did you know coming out of college that you wanted to go into coaching? No, I didn't go to school to be a coach. I went, uh, started out in biology. Brother was pushing me to major in biology, tried to go to med school, and yeah, I rebelled like most kids do, uh, and switched its business, took the accounting one, aced it, accounting two, aced it, and thought it was a CPA, and this is simple. I took Austin theory, and my theory wasn't the same as that professor's. <laughs> so, but anyway, I got a business degree, and was started on my master's at Alabama and then went to Arkansas, you know, for Coach uh, Bulls and to finish it. And Coach Majors got the job at Iowa State and he hired me at Iowa State. And that's how I got started coaching. What was it that made yeah. Coach? Go ahead. And what was? Yeah. What was? What was it that made? Coach Bryant, such a successful coach with these assistant coaches. I mean, he churned them out. You had Pat Dye, yourself, Charlie Powell, Jerry Claiborne. It just seemed like the assistant coaches under him all succeeded. Howard Schnellenberger, Gene Stallings. Well, Coach Bryant was a great, great teacher. And he, he allowed his coaches to coach. Coach Bryant really was a lot smarter than than anybody imagined. And even today, you know, you have some coaches that can coach players and coaches. You know, your your head coach 
really should be your motivator, your position coach's coach, and people get that all wrong uh, because especially today the head coach demands on him. He doesn't have the, the time to devote to really be the coordinator or, or be a coach. Now, yeah, I coach the kicking game. You can do that and still be a head coach. But make a long story short, Coach Bryant allowed his coaches to coach. He would set up all the practice. You'd come into the meeting. You'd have every uh, period mapped out. And then from there, the coaches would, you know, put it together and they would actually coach. That doesn't mean that he didn't watch everybody, didn't know exactly what was going on, because he did. But he allowed coaches to coach. And I think today, if you become a coach, then you have to master your craft. And it takes many hours. And we see so many coaches today that really do not understand the game all day had done was copied what somebody talked to. And technique fundamentals, uh, very few of them have technique fundamental backgrounds. Was Coach Brand as tough on his assistants as he was on his players? Uh, yes. We played Vanderbilt one year and uh, we didn't play, play him like Coach Bryant wanted us to and Anyway, <laughs> he called for an early meeting on Monday morning, and the coaches used to sit in the front row, Charlie Pell and Sharp and all those guys, Richard Williamson. And so he was talking about fundamental things, how to hold a football, how to tackle, doing very main the main things, and he grabbed, and I don't remember if it was Sharp or Pell, but he pulled him up and knocked him back over two or three rows and pulled him back up and knocked him over again. And that afternoon when we have our regular practice at 120, I believe it was 140 every day, none of the coaches sat, ever sat in front of Coach Bryant. They all sat on the sides. But you never, never would hear Coach Bryant embarrass the coach. He never embarrassed the coach. Now, I can't tell you what he said behind the closed door, but on the field, you know, he was not that type of coach. Wasn't it a change working under um, Coach Johnny Majors? Coach Majors was the best PR guy that's ever been in this business. And you know, Coach Majors had, he knew football and he knew technique, but Coach Majors had, Coach Balls, you know, I had the opportunity to, to play and coach for Coach Wright and then for Coach Balls and then for Coach Majors. Uh, you know, Coach Balls was probably business wise the smartest. You know, he was able to do a lot of things business wise and he still is. And Coach Majors was probably the best PR guy. And, you know, he, if he met you 20 years ago, he still can tell you your name. 
Did you have much of a relationship with Johnny Majors before he hired you? Just the year at Arkansas. Okay. And I remember uh, he asked me what I could coach. And I said, Coach, if you're a coach, you can coach anything. But he he gave me the opportunity to be a head coach. He hired me, and I started out as a as a uh, you know B team coach, and went to linebacker, and went to defensive coordinator, assistant head coach, and at a very young age, I was twenty three, uh, twenty twenty three going on twenty four, and was a defensive coordinator and assistant head coach. Was it hard being assistant coach at that age? Because there wasn't that much difference age-wise between you and the seniors. No, it was it was probably the best thing it was because you know there wasn't anything that they could do to to. I mean, you always anticipated what they were going to do before they did. And knock on wood, you know, I never. I never had a player lie to me. Coach Major allowed me to be in charge of discipline, and I never had a player lie to me. And and, and it was, you know, kind of they may not have told the truth to other coaches, but they they would they always told me the truth, and they knew that I that I was going to discipline them, and it wasn't going to be easy. But they and that was. To them, they understood that. You were right about Coach Broyles being a great businessman. I think his best decision was uh, joining Augusta National. <laughs> That's right. Uh, well, uh, Stevens, uh, you know, he's out of Little Rock. And back then, I think it was $20,000 was the initiation fee when Coach Broyles joined. And, and, uh, and that was... I think a gift from Stevens to Coach Broyles. That's a pretty nice gift. <laughs> yes, and you know, there's he uh, he honored it very well. You know, he's he has been a great member for Augusta. Has he taken you out there at all? No, but I, I fortunately, you know, I could call him today, and he would, but. Uh, fortunately, I, I got to go play uh, as a guest of George Bryan, and that's a Sarah Lee Corporation. Yes. How'd you do? Believe it or not, uh, played really well. You know, okay. when you go there, the only thing you're concerned about is playing Amen Corner, because that's and so. I don't know what a shot on the front side, but I, I, I want to say 40-something, 40 41. But on the back side, I, I bogey 10, part uh, 11, part 13, birdie four, uh, yes, 12. I, I bogey 10, part 11, part 12, birdie 13, uh, part 14, birdie 15, part 16, double 17, and bogey 18. You'll never forget that score. No, I can. I can tell you almost every shot too. Is it that way when you recall football games as well? That, that you can sort of uh, relive it on a play-by-play basis. You do. Uh, you remember 
probably things that other people don't remember. You know, I, I, I always charted the game when I started as a GA for Coach Bryant and go out and, re, and scout. You'd be watching the play and writing at the same time in the press box. So I, I developed a habit of being able to write and watch at the same time. And I remember uh, we are playing Mississippi uh, one year, and Jolie Dunn asked me, he said, or asked on the sideline, what what, they, what have they done on third down? I said, they've thrown three posts and a hitch. And he looked at me like, how do you know? <laughs> and that's, I always started the game, and, and then after the game, or at halftime, I was able to study it. And after the game, I converted on the play-by-play sheet and then watched the film and then watched the film with the coaches. So when I watched the film with the coaches, I knew pretty well what was going to happen before the play started. And it was just a way for me to stay ahead and also to – you know, stay in the game. Yeah. You know, you see coaches today on the sideline and they don't do anything. They just walk up and down. Yeah. They'll occasionally yell at the referees, things like that. Yeah, but you, you do sort of well, wonder. You didn't, yeah, I, I always told the wing guys, I said, if, if you don't have earplugs in, go get them. <laughs> uh, because, and they all laughed. I mean, it. They knew it was going to be tough. You know, I never, I never uh, got upset on a judgment call, but on error calls where they misparked or did something uh, mechanically wrong, then that's when I got upset. Did you recruit Tony Dorsett to Pittsburgh? Yes, I did. Tony told us that he wanted to go to Penn State and he would have went there, but Joe Paterno never talked to him once, and that's why he decided to go to Pittsburgh. Was that true? Uh, no. He, you know, Tony went up on an official visit, I think, the week or two weeks before national signing, and uh, he visited with Paterno on Tuesday morning, uh, and uh, it, it confused him. He was. They were having a track meet Tuesday afternoon, and so I get to the school around noon, and the uh, the track coach come up and started hollering at me. Not, you know, technically, but he was not very happy with me because he had thought that I had talked Tony into quit, quitting track. And but Tony had after he visited with Penn State, he came in turned his uniform in, and I went from 12 o'clock till 12 o'clock at night trying to find him, couldn't find him, and finally I called his mother to find him. So I I drive back to uh, Pittsburgh, take a shower, change clothes, come back, and get back about 4 o'clock in the morning, and I'm parked outside his house in the parking lot, and I see these lights come on around me. We're in projects, and... They wanted to know who that white narc was out there in, in parking lot. But I wouldn't let anybody else get to him. <laughs> you know, 
there's a lot of a really good and great high school players that sort of fizzle out on the collegiate level. What, what was your sense of uh, that Dorsett was a surefire All-American and that became a Heisman Trophy winner? Speed. You know, he just – he could have been an Olympic sprinter if he really wanted to. Uh, he just – he had speed that no, no others had at that time. And I don't know what his times were or how fast. I think he told me he probably was a sub-4-3 uh, when in pro ball. But uh, just the explosion that he had, his hands, uh, I mean, he just – even though he was small, and matter of fact, uh, the first day at the high school, the high school principal kicked me out of the high school. I was they had converted a uh, closet into a meeting room for all the coaches coming in. I'm in the room waiting my time, and then I go in to meet Tony and Ed Willamosti, and the door burst open, and the guy says, who are you? And I told him, Jackie Sherrill. And he said, where are you from? I said, Pittsburgh. He said, get out. And he actually threw me out of the high school. And I went back every day, and we became friends. Matter of fact, I was there so much, they thought I was a, a teacher. After this brief break, we'll be back with part two of our interview with Jackie Sherrill. You're listening to Sports and Torts on TalkZone.com. 